The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. Start! You can call me Bruce. Nolan is standing by. Hey, wacky Bruce. Coming to you from an undisclosed location, this is the Bruce Exclusive. And here's your host, Bruce Nolan. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome. To another edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. You might be wondering why I sound like this. If you have not been following me on social media, first off, shame on you. I'm kidding. I'm not really that interesting. But also, I have COVID. So we're going to see how the podcast goes. But the energy level necessary to be able to do the Bruce voice, just don't have it. So instead, you get to listen to the pleasing baritone of Bruce White, which is what we're going to call it for today. The title of today's podcast is In Sickness and in Health. And the reason I thought that was really ironic is because something that I was thinking about a lot during my wife and I's bout recently and current about with COVID is I was thinking about complimentary football, which is interesting. See, my wife and I have a rule when you are living alone with somebody else, it's just me and her and the dogs in this house and both of you are sick. It kind of stinks because, you know, the person who's well is supposed to take care of the person who's not well. But what if you're both not well? What if both sides of the coin are broken? They're all scratched up. What do you do? Well, she and I have a a rule. We have a, a process that we follow. You might find that surprising or hard to believe, but we have a process for this. We will check in specifically when a meaningful task needs to be done. And the person who is feeling better will take care of the person who is feeling worse. The idea that someone needs to be feeling good in order to be of service is not a thing in the Nolan household. It's not, are you feeling good? It's who is feeling better. The one who is sicker will be taken care of by the one who is less sick. So for example, that means that Thursday night, Friday, and Saturday during the day, I was taking care of her more than she was taking care of me because she was worse during that time. But then Saturday afternoon, when I started feeling bad, it was bad for both of us. On Sunday, she was taking care of me much more so. And that was the case Monday as well. Now, Tuesday and Wednesday were both fairly functional to the point where we can get our own stuff and do our own things and things like that. But it balanced itself out in the end. Because we were being complimentary to each other. The part of this marriage that was sicker was being taken care of by the part of the marriage that was more well. It's interesting because 
Sean McDermott has talked about complimentary football a lot. And I think that we've seen it from the Buffalo Bills in its absence. We've seen the lack of complimentary football from the Buffalo Bills. And I think that people have really put that in a bad light. I have my own list of problems with Sean McDermott, but we are creating narratives. And I have just given you an outline of what complimentary football actually is. We talked about it last week on this pod and how the Buffalo Bills offense is being put in long fields all the time because the defense wasn't getting turnovers and that's making it harder for them to do their jobs. The special teams is getting penalties and they're they're punting poorly. Goodness gracious, there are Bills coaches of old that would be really upset about how poorly the Buffalo Bills have punted. And so for me, when I look at complimentary football, I think a lot about the situation with my wife and I. I think about the person who is more well should be lifting up and assisting and helping out the person who is less well. In this case, the offense should be helping the defense as well. The offense should be helping the defense by scoring a lot, getting out in front, and allowing a severely banged up defense to be able to have a little bit more margin of error. But then when the defense holds up their end of the bargain, the offense doesn't deliver. When the defense tries to get turnovers, they get turnover against the Denver Broncos. The offense turns it over way more. The defense tries to get in good field position. The offense botches it. That's not complimentary football at all. And I'm not sure where this narrative has popped up, but recently, this week, after the Ken Dorsey firing, it feels like we've already moved on to the next firing. We've already moved on to McDermott. And so now the narrative pops up that Sean McDermott wants a run-first offense. I, I have no idea where this came from. I have a list of flaws of Sean McDermott. We've been very critical of Sean McDermott on this podcast. But this idea that Sean McDermott wants a run-first offense is based on literally nothing. There's, there's no evidence. We're just, it's conjecture based on some press conference clips that we've lined up, ignoring all the other press conference clips, like you know when he says it's a pass-first league and it's a quarterback-driven league, or the fact that they've been pass-first every single year. Well, that's, just, that's not the way he wants to do it. Okay, so hold on. So is he too involved in the offense? Or is he not involved at all? Because I can't keep up anymore. Sean McDermott cannot simultaneously be too involved in the offense that he's meddling and screwing it up because he wants a run first offense and then have the offense not be run first. That those two things cannot coincide. The Bills have been a pass happy team every single year. Now, did earlier this year I say I want to pass the ball more in neutral situations? Yeah, absolutely I do. I 100% do. But that's a, that's a very significant far cry from it's a run-first offense. Like, the Bills have never been a run-first offense since Josh Allen became good. And that's the way it should be. When you have a really good quarterback, you're not going to be a run-first offense. But this narrative has taken its, it's taken its, own, its own form now. And it's based on nothing, and I don't understand. I think it's because the first head has rolled and we're moving on to the second one already. This offseason, I was ranking head coaches with Jay Spence the King. You've heard this story before if you haven't listened to that show. I had Sean McDermott in the top half, and I said he was fine. He's above average, he's not elite, but he's good enough to win a Super Bowl. I stand by all those statements. My opinion on Sean McDermott hasn't changed. I, I, I was the one who, when everyone said he was a top three, top five head coach, and I was like, eh, well, you know, these are the coaches I would have other, these are the things I don't like about it. Like, oh, and then they push it back. In the comment section of that show that I did two weeks ago on a Saturday, people were yelling at me saying Sean McDermott was a top five head coach. Now everybody wants to fire him. I didn't change. Your perception of him might have, but I, did, I, I didn't change. My perception of Sean McDermott is the same as it's always been. That he's, he's fine. He's an above average head coach. And he has some meaningful flaws that I'm completely fine acknowledging. And if they end up 
firing him at the end of the year. I'm just going to shoot for saying, okay, can we get another top half head coach? Because I think that's kind of what you need to win a Super Bowl. I think you need somebody in the top half. And would I be looking for an offensive-minded head coach? Sure, yeah. I, I, I think I'd prefer that. I mentioned that a couple weeks ago. In an ideal world, I would prefer an offensive-minded head coach. So I'm, I'm fine if you want to. If you want to, I don't think Sean McDermott's an elite head coach. But that's not a new thing for me. I didn't think he was an elite head coach two years ago. Nothing has changed on my end. But that doesn't mean we're going to make up criticisms. At some point, we actually have to care for being fair. Do you care if you're being fair in your criticisms? If not, then, then you're in the wrong spot. Like This is not the podcast for you. Someone said on, on Twitter to me, Bruce, we're close to getting Sean McDermott fired. Now is not the time for nuanced takes. That's what they said to me. It is never a bad time to be fair. I will always want to be fair. I am on board with criticizing Sean McDermott for something he actually did, for something that's actually his fault. How about this stupid challenge of something that was 100% not challengeable? Like, just, it's just, it, was, it was completely dumb, and you waste the time out late in a game that you absolutely needed one. Late in a game. You need those timeouts. You cannot burn them. How about that? Let's criticize something for something he actually did. And I know that's a foreign concept because what happens is we want to be mad at someone. We will accept any sort of ammunition to do so. Any ammunition. It doesn't even matter if it's correct. If we're mad at Sean McDermott, then literally anything somebody says in favor of firing Sean McDermott, we're going to jump on board. Even if it's a lie. We're still going to do it. It's just wrong. It's just wrong. I'm not going to do it. You, you can find plenty of other people who will do it, and I'm sure they'll 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 flip flop and they'll say he's the greatest thing ever three weeks ago, and now he's going to say he needs to be fired. And and like there's there's an audience out there for that. You are welcome to it. You're in the wrong place. If that's what you think you're going to get here, I will tell you one thing that I think is. 100% a bad argument in favor of keeping Sean McDermott. And I've mentioned it before, but we're going to go into a little depth now. Do you remember what the drought years were like? Do you want to go back to the drought years? Do you remember what it was like before Sean McDermott? One of the most common tweets in defense of Sean McDermott is, it's almost like you don't remember what it was like before Sean McDermott. I'm going to use another sickness metaphor. Sunday was the worst day for me in this bout. And Sunday, it was like the worst flu I'd ever had, right? I could barely move, and it was terrible. On Tuesday morning, I started feeling better. So now it's like a really, really bad cold. And there was a sense of euphoria. And you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you're sick and you start to feel better, there's this brief window where you have this euphoric moment where everything is compared to the way you felt when you were sick. And you have this strange perspective where you go, well, could be worse. I could have felt like that again. But that's not a reason not to make changes in your life. Well, you know, I, I know I should work out. I know I should, should eat better. I know I should take better care of myself and everything. But you know what? Could be worse. I could be that sickness over there. So I'm just going to be really happy. You know, with what I've got and the fact that I'm, I'm alive and my body works and, and, you know, I used to be really sick, but now I feel better. Think about the logic there. It's the exact same way with Sean McDermott. The idea that this team was terrible and mediocre and boring for 17 years is not a reason to not fire McDermott. That's not the reason. So I want the criticisms to be fair. I want the reasons that we use to defend McDermott to be fair, intellectually honest, justifiable, and logical. But right now, when everyone's angry, those are the least common things you're going to see. You're just going to see rage for and raged against. It's so dangerous out there right now. Because nobody cares about being truthful. You're just going to start to accept nonsense because... You want to believe it, whether that's pro-McDermott 
or anti-McDermott, you will accept it regardless of whether or not it has any massive logical fallacies in it because we're fighting. That's what we're doing. But situations like this are much closer to being fencing than they are to being fighting. They're precise. They're timed. They're pointed. So Ken Dorsey is gone. Sean McDermott is next on the chopping block. I mentioned a couple weeks ago that I had a list of problems with Ken Dorsey. I talked about him last week. I talked about some specific issues with the offense and some things I needed to see Ken Dorsey do differently. I've been talking about increasing play action count for what seems like two years now. Are we going to see those things with Joe Brady? Maybe. I don't know. We'll, we'll keep an eye on it. But we'll objectively analyze those things when they happen. And as for Sean McDermott, we'll be fair. We'll be critical when there's criticism necessary. And I just want to be fair in sickness and in health. We are going to take a quick break. Stick with me. We'll be right back. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this edition of the Bruce Exclusive, a Buffalo Rumblings podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Nolan. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram, at Bruce Exclusive. Welcome back. So we talked about in sickness and in health, and I hope that came off okay. You know, you get a little foggy in your brain when you're sick, and so I have notes, but I don't even know if they make sense. I'm just kind of going off of them. And then there's a translated between what I wrote them when I was sick and I'm also delivering them when I'm sick. So it's like playing telephone, you know, who knows what past Bruce was thinking. I don't know. He was like, well, it sounds like a problem for future Bruce. Well, now future Bruce is present Bruce and we're trying to interpret these notes. We're going to try to get through emails, but I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Mark says, dear Bruce, I'm a longtime listener and big fan of the show. I really liked your oft-repeated recipe for Super Bowl success. Forgive me if I get this a little wrong. Be really good for as long as possible and hope to get lucky. So the actual quote is, be as good as you can for as long as you can and hope to get lucky. But it's really close. I am a statistician by trade. So I spend a lot of time thinking about randomness and uncertainty. But I'm also an Australian, so my American football knowledge isn't strong enough to allow me to easily, easily recognize luck in a sport when I see it. There are obviously some obvious cases like bounce of an oddly shaped ball, freak injuries, QB's foot slipping. But with the advent of expected XYZ advanced stats, I've noticed a tendency to lazily label a large chunk of variability as luck. I suspect players of the sport would disagree with that characterization of the plays that they are making. I have many thoughts about this, but I'll leave them now aside because I would like to hear your definition of luck in the NFL. You briefly skimmed on it in your Hurt Locker Room episode this year, and since I've that, I've been, been hoping that you go more into depth. I know there are probably more important things to talk about, but I'd like to think if it's worth your time on a future episode, I'll be listening keenly. Thanks for all your efforts in creating the podcast. Cheers, Mark. I'm glad you brought this up, because we've mentioned that luck is a part of football, and it is. And I think that you did a pretty good job of outlining some of the stuff. So the oblong ball bounce, I think, is a, is a big part of that. Um, the ball bounces weird when it hits things. So that applies to players' hands. It applies to um, 
the ball hitting the ground. It applies to the ball hitting the goalpost. How many, you know, we've seen field goal doinks that go in and field goal doinks that go out. You know, these are things that are luck. We've seen things deflect off a person's hand that go one way and things that deflect off a person's hand that go another way. These are luck. We've seen the ball hit the ground and bounce right back up into someone else's hands like James Cook. Fumbling the ball and having it bounce right back up to you so you can gain an extra 20 yards, that's luck. So for me, I would like to describe luck as the variance that exists between uncontrollable factors. I think that's the key. The key is to separate out the controllable factor from the uncontrollable one. For example, you kick a field goal. It's a windy day, but the wind comes in gusts. The gusts are completely unable to be predicted in their timing. You kick a field goal, wind gust comes along, pushes it off. The fact that the wind gust occurred at that specific moment was completely uncontrollable to you. You have no idea when that wind gust is going to happen. You think it could happen, but if you try to account for the fact that it will happen, you're going to miss the field goal. So if you kick a ball and it hits the upright, it can go any number of different ways. It can dink in, it can dink out, but not hitting the upright is a controllable factor, assuming, again, no wind. Not hitting the, the upright is a controllable factor. What it does when it hits the upright is the uncontrollable factor. It's mostly random. So I think the key is being able to define luck as the uncontrollable factors and not just variability. So that's the way that I would define luck in the NFL. I hope that is of assistance. Jay says, hey, Bruce, your latest pod was exactly what I needed. As a fan, I've embraced most advanced stats as helpful. It's been interesting to see the evolution of coaching decisions as more teams use them. However, the Bills team has been very confusing. Over the last month, there's been so much debate as to whether or not there's something wrong with the offense. Certain analysts have argued the offense is fine. and We all need to relax by using certain metrics. This week, Mike Sando of The Athletic had just an article and pointed to the defense as the issue this year. I'm not criticizing him or his work, but that was just the latest example of a take back with stats that appeared solid but didn't feel right. With all the varying opinions, I tried to make sense of it. I started to believe analysts use stats to argue the offense is fine. We're looking at the overall game stats, but not factoring in game situations and win probabilities. When people ask, why does the offense look better late in the game or better in the second half? My thought is because they have to. They're behind or they're in trouble. Your breakdown of field position coupled with Dorsey's game plan leading to longer drives, more room for error, fewer potential big plays makes so much sense. I think it's spot on and it really helped put some pieces together that were frustrating for me. Side note about poor field position. I really hate the number of times players return kickoffs and end up getting stopped inside the 20-yard line where they should have taken a touchback or a fair catch. Uh, I'm 100% with you at this point. Lastly, I just want to say thank you for all the work you do. I know some people at the top end are getting paid well for their effort, but I think most Buffalo Rumblings contributors are doing it for the love of the game. Recently, you spoke about your own motivation. You said you do it for the interaction with listeners and because you hope it brings people enjoyment. It certainly does for me. I listen to a lot of Bill's content throughout the week, but often I find it repetitive. Your podcasts are unique, understandable, and sometimes thought-provoking. Yours has become the only podcast I never miss. Please keep it going. Thanks again, Jay. Thank you, Jay. Um, I appreciate that. I got a lot of positive feedback on last week's pod, and I put a lot of work into it. And I, I, mean, I sat there, and I stared, and I stared, and I stared. And I was trying to figure out what was going on with this Buffalo Bills offense and why this stuff wasn't lurk, working the way that it was working. And I was really happy with how it came out overall. Uh, it was a little bit longer than I intended to be, but, you know, whatever. Um, uh, full disclosure, I do get paid for this. I will say I don't get paid a lot for this. Um, and a huge chunk of my money goes back into reinvesting in um, the subscriptions and the models that I need to be able to provide a good product. Um, you know, PFF subscriptions and you know NFL Plus and all the things I need to be able to accumulate the information necessary so that I'm giving you a good product. Um, it's certainly, <laughs> uh, I think I can, I can speak fairly confidently when I say there's, there's not a lot of people out here uh, in this particular space who are doing it for the money. Um, it's certainly nice to have a hobby that is monetized because most people's hobbies end up losing them a lot of money, right? My hobby is in a net positive from a money standpoint. So that's a, a huge benefit because for most people's financial budgets, they 
they don't get a chance to do their hobbies as much as they want to because their hobbies cost money, right? Whether that's golf or fishing or flying or whatever it is, right? Um, and so it's kind of nice to have a hobby that is a net positive to the, the, the pocketbook because then you can kind of just do it and you don't have to worry about it because it's not actually a net negative to your pocketbook. So that, that, that's kind of nice. Uh, Christopher Nixon says, can you think of an argument for why Puna Ford wasn't active last week? Even when Daquan Jones was healthy, why was Puna not the primary backup at one tech? I don't know. I thought Puna played well. Um, they must not like him as much as they thought because they, they, they signed Linvel Joseph and then put him right on the field ahead of Puna Ford. So I, I don't know. I thought Puna played well. Um, it was one of my criticisms for McDermott last week. Um, why are you rolling Jordan Phillips out there at one tech two weeks ago? Like you have Puna Ford on your roster. I don't understand. Like has Jordan Phillips not already proven you that he's not a one tech player? That's not what he does. So I'm, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I think, I think I went back and watched Puna afterwards. I was like, well, maybe, maybe he didn't play well. You know, maybe my eyes were lying to me the first time through and I watched it. I was like, no, I, I'm not crazy. I thought he played well. So I, I don't know. And I don't like it. So that's a McDermott call. And I'm, not a fan. Daniel sent me an email and didn't want me to read his thoughts on the air, so I'm not going to, but I just want to let you know, Daniel, that I got it. I appreciate your well wishes. And in regards to your point about Diggs and Dalton Kincaid, I agree with you. That's it. I know that's really like cryptic for the rest of you, but it, it, it was nothing bad at all. It was great. I just want to make sure I'm being respectful to Daniel and I want to make sure I'm giving a shout out on the pod. Andy says, Bruce, an infamous pundit had a segment last week about how Sean McDermott has taken the Bills as far as he can, and it's time to move on to a coach that can actually win the team a championship. And like, I've been holding out on this stance for a long time, but after the loss of the Broncos, I think I'm fairly in the fire everyone camp. This team can't even win a meat raffle. So talk me off a ledge, or don't. I don't know anymore. Andy. I know this is the most boring answer that I could possibly give. I don't think firing Sean McDermott mid-season is going to matter at all because I don't think there's anybody on the staff who could reasonably take over as an interim that would change the trajectory of this team midseason and also provide a good audition for like the next Bills head coach. So I think firing Sean McDermott in season is completely useless. I, I truly believe it. I don't think there's a single person on, the, on the, the staff that I would be like, well, I really want to get a look at them as the head coach of this team before I look at anybody else because I think there might be some potential with that person as a head coach. That's, that's not the way I feel about any of the Buffalo Bills um, current coordinators or um, assistant coaches. I, I like a lot of their assistant coaches, but I don't think of them in that way at this point. So let's start with the fact that firing him midseason I don't think is helpful at all. Now, at the end of the season, if the Buffalo Bills have missed the playoffs, I mean, you have to talk about it, right? I mean, it's a, it's a meaningful regression. Yes, you had significant injuries, but you had an almost entirely healthy offense. Uh, yeah, you had three very, very meaningful injuries on different defense, but that's, that's not enough. So I'm fine with it. I, I know that's a really boring answer. I know saying I'm fine with it is a really boring answer, but I wasn't going to yell and scream about it at any point because Sean McDermott to me has always been fine, right? Get some criticism, has some good things I really like about him, right? <clears throat> the highest I ever got on Sean McDermott was a couple years ago. I called him good, right? Um, but I've never thought Sean McDermott was an elite head coach in the NFL. I did think he was the type of program builder that this team needed at the time when they got him. So to me, the only thing I'm concerned about is that we don't go from good enough, which I think Sean McDermott is. I still think Sean McDermott is. I think he's good enough to win a Super Bowl because I don't think that threshold's super high. So I just don't want to go from good enough to not good enough. So all I care about is that you transition to a coach that's at least as good, if not better, than Sean McDermott. I don't think you need an elite head coach. I just don't want to get you know, stuck in the the Arthur Smiths of the world. You know, I, that, that's, that's what I'm trying to avoid. I, I'm, I don't wanna, I'm trying to avoid the Jeff Saturdays of the world. So as long as we can do that, I'm fine with it. Now, I do have a preference. I've mentioned this before. 
I have a preference for an offensive-minded head coach in a, in, a, in a perfect world. I think it just gives you a little bit more stability between the head coach and quarterback. But there's a good chunk of head coaches in the NFL I like more than Sean McDermott. So for me, personally, I'm not going to talk you off a ledge. I think this year has been bad. And it's been disappointment after disappointment after disappointment. And you're, you don't have anyone else to fire, Sean. You got rid of Leslie Frazier and you took on that role yourself. You got rid of Ken Dorsey. All three of your major coordinators have been turned over. The special teams guy, the defensive coordinator, the offensive coordinator. You don't have anyone left to fire. And he's not going to fire himself. Now, I think it's really important to note, Brandon Bean cannot fire Sean McDermott. I saw some things going around about this. Brandon Bean does not have the authority to fire Sean McDermott. Brandon Bean does not have Sean McDermott as an employee. Sean McDermott does not work for Brandon Bean. They both report directly to Terry Bagula. So you can have a separate conversation entirely as to whether or not you want to keep Brandon Bean if you fired Sean McDermott, but I think it's really, really important that we know that Terry Pagula has to make that call. Terry Pagula just extended him. We had this whole conversation. I take back literally nothing of what I've said about Sean McDermott over the last six months. In the offseason when he got an extension, I did an entire pod and an article on he's not on the hot seat. And what I said was, we need to change our language. Could he become on the hot seat? Sure, absolutely. But he's not on the hot seat. You can't say, well, Sean McDermott's on the hot seat. He just got an extension. He's clearly not on the hot seat because the only person qualified to determine whether or not he's on the hot seat is the person who can actually fire him, which is Terry Pagula, who just extended him. After the underperformance of the team and the firing of the offensive coordinator, yeah, I, I think there's a reason that you could, you could probably think that Terry Pagula might have him on the hot seat if he doesn't think he can turn around. I will say this, um, firing a coach immediately after giving him an extension is odd. Firing a coach and a GM immediately after giving both of them matching extensions through 2027 is odd. I would, I would understand if they did it, I would still be surprised at this point. Now, things can change between now and the end of the year. There's a lot of football left to be played, but I would be surprised. But you and I don't get to determine whether or not he's on the hot seat. We didn't put him there. One of the discussions that kind of came out of the whole now is not the time for nuanced takes thing I talked about earlier. He said, you need to join the movement. I cannot possibly stress this enough. Whether or not I come out with nuanced, fair criticism of Sean McDermott, or whether or not I just blanket scream fire him into the ether does not matter. The team will not act differently because of that. So if I'm not actually obtaining an actual goal or achieving anything by deciding to be unfair, that makes it even more nonsensical to do it. We think that somehow by ignoring being fair, ignoring nuance, throwing every sort of dagger we have, even if they're wrong, at somebody that somehow it doesn't matter as long as the ends justify the means. You're not controlling the ends. My voice on this podcast, however Barry White it may be, or pleasing to the ladies, doesn't matter in the long run, in the grand scheme. The team does not care. They don't know who I am. If there's an outrage on Twitter, they don't care. That's not how things work. The team does not behave differently because of levels of anger on Twitter. So whether or not I am nuanced and fair or insane and completely illogical and totally unfair doesn't change the outcome at all. So I might as well do the thing that's intellectually honest and morally correct. Sounds reasonable to me because there's no upside to doing it wrong. It's not even ends justify the means because you don't control the ends. You're not achieving anything. 
Jeremy sent me an email and I hope that I answered the question, Jeremy, with my discussion about Sean McDermott. I hope I don't want to rehash the same thing again. So, you know, there's that. David said he sent me an email about being okay moving on from Dorsey. If he hadn't gotten fired before this show, I would have said, yeah, I'm fine with it. I, I, I don't think that Dorsey is all the problem, but he's the lever you can pull. I was talking with Greg Tomset cover one about this, and I think we need to do a better job of making sure that we understand that fault doesn't necessarily line up with firing. Just because something's more at fault or less at fault, that doesn't mean you're firing the person who's more at fault or less at fault, or you're only firing the people who are a majority of those two things aren't correlated. You don't fire the person who's at fault. You fire the person because you think it's part of a solution. That's not the same thing. So every time I talk about the lineup between Dorsey and McDermott and Allen, as far as fault on the offense, right? And I mention that Josh Allen has some fault because he does. Someone will say, well, we're not going to fire Allen, so what do you want? Okay, so hold on. Because we can't cut him, therefore we're just going to ignore everything else? So if I say 35% offensive coordinator, 15% head coach, 20% Allen, and then 30% offensive skill positions, if I'm building a plurality pie for things like offensive effectiveness, and I go through... When I get to quarterback, we just forget about it. But you don't assign fault for the strict idea of creating a firing. That's not the reason why you do it. The reason you assign fault isn't just to cut somebody. It isn't just to lose somebody's job. You're firing someone because it's part of a solution. But fault doesn't line up with firing. The person who's the most at fault isn't necessarily the person who gets fired. That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. And I don't understand why we can't separate those things in our head, but we should be able to because they, they, don't, they don't go together. It's not like it neatly lines up. So we're going to continue to blame the offensive coordinator for things that are the offensive coordinator's fault. We will continue to blame McDermott for the things that are McDermott's fault, and we will continue to blame Allen for the things that are Allen's fault because that's fair. That's correct. And we will do that. That doesn't mean when we criticize Allen that we should cut Allen. That's not what that means. And it also doesn't mean that because you can't cut him, now you don't criticize him. That's not how that works either. It's bad for discourse if you take everything that belongs to Allen and put it on someone else because you know you can't fire Allen. It's defense mechanism, intellectually speaking, and it's bad for you. The shirking of blame, the reassignment of responsibility in your head, you're doing it subconsciously because you know you can't fire him. Well, I, I mean, I can't, I can't do anything about that one, so I'm just going to reassign that blame somewhere. No, don't do that. Just let it sit there. But we're not comfortable with that. We're not comfortable with it's Alan's fault. He's being reckless with the ball and I can't cut him. We're not okay with that. But we need to live in that universe because... Josh Allen has been known to be reckless with the ball for his entire adult life. If he was reckless with it in college and he was reckless with it in Dable and he was reckless with it with Dorsey and he's reckless with it with Joe Brady. At what point is it just Allen? You can't just turn around and make everything Ken Dorsey's fault, right? Ken Dorsey was a part of this problem. And I'm, I'm personally relieved that he's gone so that we can help further isolate variables. I'm completely fine with Ken Dorsey being gone. I hope we see a markedly better version of Josh Allen. But this idea that the problem is now solved is probably not accurate. But what we're going to do now is now when it happens, now it's going to be McDermott. Sometimes it's just Alan, and that's, that's okay. Like, it's okay to just have it be that. Trevor emailed me and said, totally unrelated to the 
Bills. I want your opinion on the Harbaugh Stallions scandal. You being a Buckeye and someone I highly respect in terms of opinions, I figured you'd be someone fun or cool to ask about it. Um, I pray for you and Mrs. Nolan after the loss of your big guy, too. I hope you guys have continued to heal over the last few weeks. You know what? Um, I was telling Mrs. Nolan today, what a blessing that we got COVID after we had to say goodbye to the big one. Like, can you imagine if we would have gotten this the final week that he was with us when he needed constant help, like to move? You know, we had to try and carry a hundred pound dog around just to help him try and move. Uh, and we were trying to, uh, you know, use his harness to get him up and then, you know, uh, you know, kind of walk him through and try and take him outside. And, you know, he was struggling to squat and use the restroom. So we had to help him with that too. Like, can you imagine trying to do that while you were sick with COVID? Like, this is terrible. It's awful. And so was losing my furry friend. But what a blessing that it happened in that order and not the other one. Like, what a blessing that it happened now and not two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Um, so, yeah, it sucks, but I'm, I'm grateful um, that it could have been much worse. In regards to the Harbaugh Stallion scandal in college football, college football procedural stuff is not a strength of mine. So I'm a college football fan. There's no question. But as far as the procedures of college football, a lot of college football recruiting from high school, I don't follow it. Like It's almost like if you think about the football journey as a timeline, I come into play when people start playing for their college football team. Like Frequently, I will have to ask my wife, who's, a, who's the Buckeyes' third-string quarterback? Like, who's, who's, who's the guy up next for this? Do we have a transfer or something like this? Because I don't, I, don't, I don't follow them the way I follow the Bills. So I'm a fan of the Buckeyes, but it's, it's much, much different than it is for me for the Bills, um, partly because this is my job. I take following the bills extremely seriously. Um, it's the reason why I do a podcast while I have COVID. I take my responsibility to you uh, as a listener and my, I, 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 I gave my word that I would do my podcast every single time I could and have it available to you Thursday morning. And so come hell or high water, hospital visitor, no, I am going to try to get it done. And there will be days when I can't, but those are very rare. And so my responsibility to the Buckeyes is just, it's just not the same. And so I don't know a ton about it, to be honest. Um, I mean, I know, I mean, obviously I know the, the big hits, right? I know the big hits. Um, it seems quite frankly, incredibly hilarious as far as the process and, and what all's happened uh, with uh, the sign stealing scandal. I saw some great game day signs in regards to uh, making some good jokes about it, but I think that overall what Harbaugh and the Wolverines did is not markedly different than what every team does. I think that the Big Ten will over-dramatize it probably. Um, there will be some, you know, some penalty, right? Harbaugh's already been suspended from the sidelines for the rest of the year. Um, and I think that if the investigation concludes and that's it, I'm fine with that. I'm not sitting here demanding their head. Um, Again, because I'm trying to be fair. I, the fact that I don't like Michigan, the fact that you know they're the Buckeyes rivals, it doesn't matter. I put that aside for a second, and I want to be fair in criticism. So I'm fine with the punishment, and I'm fine if that's all there is from a punishment standpoint. Cfath emailed me and said he was sorry for the loss of my dog, so thank you. And he, he kind of outlined a lot of what I have talked about historically about Sean McDermott, he said, I've gone on record in the past saying, I never believed McDermott was a top 10 coach in the league. I also said he never wanted to be fired. I just wanted him to be better. I think it might be stagnating though. I recall you once mentioned you believe in the clutch gene and that Josh Allen possessed it. This is true. I do believe that there are certain people who simply perform better under pressure than other people. He says, I believe that Sean McDermott not only does not possess it, but he has the choke gene. I don't think I need to list the many excusable gaffes over the years, but it's clear that they were mostly obfuscated by phenomenal games by the offense and or defense. 
If the rumors are true about McDermott taking over play calling during 13 seconds, then it seems par for the course that we would let Trevor Lawrence, Mac Jones, and Russell Wilson easily march down the field when it mattered most this season. I believe McDermott may be coaching for his job this year, as the firing of the offensive coordinator in season feels very similar to Rex Ryan's final year, where he fired Greg Roman. I love for him to turn around, but I think the organization has reached their ceiling with McDermott. I'll take that part first. Um, I hated the cover zero blitz there. And I'll tell you why he did it. So Sean McDermott wants to be aggressive on defense. And when you have a high leverage moment like that, people who are aggressive, they want to control that moment. They want to dictate, not they don't want to be dictated to. So I need you to understand that from a mindset standpoint, if you are aggressive on a defensive coordinator, when you are in a high leverage moment, you want to dictate to the offense. You don't want the offense to dictate to you. That's why he did it. My problem is he was you were out of field goal range. You were out of field goal range and you just ran it. Like you just ran a pressure look. I just hoping it'll work twice in a row is is just it's bad process, in my opinion. It's really bad process. Now, sure, if that flag doesn't get thrown, it's a whole thing, but I think it's a bad process. You got your W when you got a sack. The absolute thing that Russell Wilson could not do. He took a sack, right? Be calm. Don't get greedy. Do what you got to do. I think that they were out of field goal range. Maybe he thought they'd try a long one and they had a shot, but I hated the call. And so I don't disagree. Um, There have been some really close games that have had Sean McDermott mistakes that have mattered. Time management, timeout management, which we already talked about, challenge management, um, things that are actual head coach stuff. One of my main concerns about Sean McDermott taking over defensive play calling was he already wasn't perfect when it came to head coaching stuff. There's other things I did like. I liked his fourth down aggressiveness. Um, So I was... I was generally a fan of his go no go philosophy, and so I was, I was, I was always on board with that. Um, go versus field goal, I was always usually on board with that as well. But there was other stuff that I didn't like, and I didn't think it was going to get better when he decided to take on defensive play calling, and it hasn't. So, like I said before, fine with it. His second part of his email says, "I'm curious as to your take about Trayvon Diggs' tweet in regards to his request to free Stephon Diggs." And that Stephon Diggs essentially is the primary reason Josh Allen is elite. I love revisionist history conveyed in those tweets, as if Stephon Diggs immediately arrived in Buffalo as a top five receiver. He wasn't even close to being viewed as a top ten receiver, and wasn't even viewed as the best receiver on his own team. Meanwhile, other veterans, Cole Beasley and John Brown, had their best years under Josh Allen. The two simply have great chemistry on the field and mutually benefited from playing each other. However, I have a hard time believing Trayvon Diggs just decided to interject on behalf of his brother and hit send on those tweets without Stephon being privy to it. I hope it isn't the case, but if it is, Stephon Diggs will give me James Harden vibes and may not finish out his contract in Buffalo. If Diggs wants out of Buffalo, do you think the Bills should call the Raiders to see if they'd be open to swapping Adams for Diggs? Please correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the dead money for both players isn't too far off from one another next year, nearly identical in 2025. Perhaps finishing out his career with the Raiders could be freedom that Trayvon Diggs was talking about. Okay, so first off, yes, that annoys me. And Stephon Diggs is antics on social media were a conversation piece earlier this offseason. I railed against Sean McDermott, shocker, there we are, and Stefan Diggs after the big nonsense on the first day of mandatory minicamp where I was like, y- you you let this happen. Like, you knew, you chose to post that intentionally cryptic thing the exact day this thing was all happening. And then you go, oh man, I don't know, what, it was, what are you talking about, man? It had nothing to do with anything. Like, do you, do, you think, do you think I'm an idiot or do you want me to think that you're an idiot? So I don't want to assign Trayvon to Stefan. But yeah, it, it, it annoys the crap out of me. It annoys the crap out of me because it brings, it brings the narrative back. Stefan Diggs has an untradeable contract, folks. Like, it's untradeable. And so the way it works is if you trade him for Devontae Adams, you don't, get a, you don't get a chance to, like, swap the money. That's not how it works. You, hit the, you have the dead money here, and then the Raiders have the dead money there. It is, it's just not tradable. 
Um, I've looked at it a bunch of different ways. I just, I don't think, I just don't think it's tradable. I think you'd have to do something with it. I think you'd have to make some sort of arrangement. I, I don't, I don't think it is reasonably tradable to try and move his contract until 2025. So I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a thing. Evan has a almighty take to finish us out. He says, so it took me a few days, but I'm back on my Homer BS. Joe Brady is just what the doctor ordered. He's a quiet ginger from William and Mary who is results oriented. He's going to take the best of the Bills playbook this year, play action under center, and the Bills are going to come alive. Their confidence is shaky, so I won't predict a boat race, but they'll manage to outscore Zach Wilson in all four quarters, winning 24-9, beginning in a currently improbable seemingly run to the playoffs and the Super Bowl, doing a road Warriors winning the West wild card, divisional, and AFC championship game on the road, barring a Miami second half of the season meltdown, which, you know, stranger things have happened, right? In the final drive of the game, of Sunday's game, Diggs catches a touchdown and goes up to the cameraman and says, Lil bro, I love you, but stay off Twitter and focus on rehab. Well, we can all be so lucky. I think that last part might be the, uh, the most Homer thing that Evans ever emailed me. I had no idea that a pod that happened when I could barely speak was going to last 49 minutes, but my tea got me through longer than I thought it was going to. So I apologize ahead of time if I listen to this back and it's nonsensical. But never forget that I was here for you when I said I was going to be here for you. Whether I'm sick or not. Because you know what? That's the way the cookie crumbles. I'm Bruce Nolan. Welcome to the